Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. I've had a verse on my mind that was given to me a long time ago, way back when I was 19, long time ago. Uh, at a time in my life, early in my Christian experience, and it meant very little to me at the time. And I don't know if you've had people do that. If you go to somebody early on or, or even today, you go and ask counsel of someone and, and they have a verse for you. You know, they want to give you a verse. They want to give you something that you can hold on to. And yet you look at it and you agree with what you read. But maybe three years, four years, ten years later, suddenly that verse really means something to you. I moved out here on trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That that verse became so real to me on the process of leaving everything I had in New Jersey and moving here that it was living. It was one of those things where today we've got a whole Bible of God's Word written down, Scripture thousands of years old that we count on to speak to us today. <clears throat> and it does, doesn't it? And it should. Now, I'm going to follow along. Uh, yeah, I didn't intend to, but there seems to be a theme of encouragement in the messages lately. And you may not think so when I give you the, me- the title of my message, but you'll have to bear with me till we get to the end. But the title is The Furnace of delayed fulfillment. Sounds encouraging, doesn't it? It is encouraging. Isaiah 50, if you're there, we'll start reading in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves. And for your transgressions, your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. 
Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This passage of Scripture is written to people, as we know from chapter 39, people who we know have gone into captivity. They've been taken out of their homeland, and they've been transported to Babylon, which is a good piece away. That'd be like be like you and I kind of getting all corralled together and say, you know, we're going to take a walk to New Jersey. You wouldn't enjoy that much, would you? No. Now, when he starts out in, ver- in chapter 50, now he's responding to these people and in verse, in chapter 49, I was told to underline some stuff in there and I hope you got some underlining done in chapter 49. You got, anybody got underlining in chapter 49? You should. But chapter 49, this is God's questioning of these people. And he starts out in verse 1, he says, Thus says the Lord. Now, we all know, if a verse starts out with, Thus says the Lord, is that something we need to hear? I mean, it's not just some phrase they tack on the front of this. This is, Thus says the Lord. And the Lord is going to ask some questions of his people. Now, that's fair, I think, for God to ask questions of all of us. If you read the book of Job, you're going to come to chapter 38 and thereafter. And God is going to ask Job a series of questions. I mean, a lot of questions. And you read the questions and you go, you will have to be like Job. When in chapter 40, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. God begins to ask you questions. If God begins to ask me questions, if he wants to challenge something, I am speaking to him, as these people were doing. They were responding in a way and saying things. Let's go back to forty, chapter 49. In verse 14, it says, But Zion said, the Lord, ha-, we just heard this Sunday, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. They have a complaint, don't they? They're 70 years separated from their homeland. They're they're now in a land where they're being held against their will. They, They are captives there, aren't they? They have been taken from their homeland, but for us that would be like, we, we, we don't, it's a little bit more than just if you and I were driven from our house. You know, you're, somebody comes along and says, you know what, we're going to gather all these people up, we're going to take their house, we're going to burn their house down, and we're taking all these people with us to where we want them to serve us. And we would be distraught, I would think. And it's happened to people. But when you think about this, this is Jerusalem. This is the temple that was totally laid waste by Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, what does that mean to the Jews? Is that a big... To these people, of course, you know, they've already got a pretty slack attitude about their God. But for these people, the temple in Jerusalem, that was a representation of God's presence in their midst. That was their connection to their God. That was going to be the kingdom of God on earth was going to be right there. They were waiting for these things. They had an expectation. They had a hope. They were the chosen people of God. Now, if that is raised and there's nothing left and you're taken somewhere else and you're there for a long time, would you not ask the same question? Has God forsaken us? Has He forgotten about us? In chapter 40, this is what Jacob said, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. So God is answering these people. They're voicing a complaint in the situation that they find themselves in. The difficulty is in that their hope, their expectation, and everything they were counting on has been destroyed, and they're not anywhere near it. And after a number of years, a delay, they're beginning to ask questions, aren't they? They're beginning to complain. But they're saying that the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Now, none of us in this room, actually I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I got to thinking about some individuals in here, and how many things... We have endured, will endure, or maybe are enduring right now because we have an expectation, don't we? But when that expectation goes out further and further and the, the, the delay of the fulfillment gets longer and longer, what happens? How many people do we know that started out this is, this is it. This is where I belong. This is who I am. This is who I'm connected to. This is what I believe. And then the delay comes. And then the trials come. And the, the, just the, the mental anguish that would come with the weight. And Mike Guthrie talked a little bit about that, didn't he? The weight. And they begin to question and complain, don't they? I mean, I'm sure you could think of one person maybe that you know has done this. And they begin to question and they complain and they think, maybe, just maybe, this isn't really it. This really isn't. There must be something wrong with God because, listen, if this was going to be fulfilled, it would have been fulfilled by now. So people tend to give up when things drag on, don't they? You begin to... You know, I'm sure there's people in here right now that you can probably think of something that you had a promise from God and you held on as long as you possibly thought you could. And at some point, you resign to the fact that it's just not going to happen. Maybe nobody's done that, but I think some have. You kind of get to the point where it's like, you know, it's... I just, 
it's too difficult to hang on. And the furnace starts burning away things, taking away, as with these people here, the dross. These people here are being purified, aren't they? So when we complain, when we complain about how long something is taking for God to fulfill or manifest in our lives, what are we really saying? Are, are, are we are we justifying our complaints in that we are basically blaming who? We're blaming God. Are we not to murmur and complain? Is that one of the things in 1 Corinthians 10 that we're not to follow the example of those in the wilderness? Not to murmur and complain because we, in our finite thoughts and ways, think that this should go the way we want it to go. The fulfillment should happen now. And because it's not, we begin to waver. We begin to doubt. We begin to ask questions. We begin to complain. So these people are going to get an answer from God. And I know that if God was to ask me questions, I would want to be like Job. Because when God begins to ask questions of me, or you, or us, the best thing we could do is what? Just be quiet. Just be quiet. God is asking you a question. He's challenging your complaint. He wants to pinpoint where you're at. And He wants to burn away something that's in your life. He wants to purify all of us. So the affliction, the tribulation, testing, suffering, and chastisement that we see in the Scripture are not things to be avoided as a teaching. They all have their purpose. We don't hide from these things. These things are all part of the Christian life. Chastisement, suffering, tribulation, and trouble, does that indicate a lack of faith? Not at all. It's because you have faith. And a delay in God's fulfillment of a promise. Is that no from him? Is that an answer of no? Because it seems to me that Jesus left this earth first telling his disciples, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And then I'm coming back. Now, how many years ago was that said? That was like yesterday, right? That was a long time ago in our time frame, isn't it? A long time ago. How many people give up in the midst of hardship and trials? Maybe they are. They're waiting for their deliverer to come. And the delay in the fulfillment causes them to complain, waver, and fall away. Even the scoffers are going to say, right? In, in uh, Second Peter, right? Where is his coming? You people are believing this. Where is he coming? Now, as the world, as we seem to sense, I'm not a prophet, but it does seem like there's a sense in this world that things are winding down, that things are something uneasy is in the world. Now, if, if for some reason 
If God so chooses to allow this country at the end of all things to come under persecution, are you not going to be looking for His return? You're going to be looking for Him to come and rescue you, aren't you? These people in captivity have a promise that God was going to restore them after the period of 70 years. So when we think about the things we go through in this life, the things that we look to God for as a promise from Him, and we're looking for the manifestation or the fulfillment of that, will we endure the delay? Will we allow that delay to have its work in us? Because God is not done with us. God has a purpose for affliction and suffering and persecution. It's not just to give you a hard time in life. Because I know, and you know, that He loves you. It's not about Him just wanting to beat up on you a while. There's a purpose in all the things that we endure. So when Zion says back in 49.14 that the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me, God responds to these complainers by asking some questions. Who are they looking to blame? Who are they looking to blame for this delay, for this, for this place they're at under the hardship they're in? Who are they looking to blame? They really want to blame God. He must have forsaken us. He must have forgotten about us. So God responds by asking some questions. The first one he asks is, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Come on, people. Produce that certificate, that document that comes from me, your God, that says I put you away or your mother. Show me the document. Because they couldn't, could they? There was no divorce certificate from God's side. He didn't divorce them. He never divorced them. In the Old Testament, we know that a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24 says when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce He puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house. God's asking, you're having some trouble, aren't you? And now you're saying that I forgot you, I've forsaken you. Show me the certificate that I gave you. Because there is none. Prove to me that I did you wrong. Because there wasn't any certificate. And he goes on to ask, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? You know, back back then, if, if you incurred a great debt, what would you do? You couldn't pay your debts. You'd sell yourself, your wife, your kids. You'd sell those to pay a debt. Now, who is God indebted to? 
Nobody. Nobody. Those people were not divorced. Those people were not sold. Nothing from God's side was what caused the separation here, is it? He goes on and says in verse, in verse 1, he says, For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. Don't you dare. Don't you and I dare in our daily lives when things seem difficult. When things seem hard, when God's promise seems so far away, never question God's faithfulness. He's never going to not fulfill His promise. Ever. It's never His side that comes up short. We're talking about God, aren't we? We're not talking about a man. So this separation that they're feeling in the midst of this chastening, this purification, this afflicted time in this furnace, as they're being purged, as they're being cleansed of their idolatry, as they're being shown who they really are, as their hearts are being exposed to them, they're finding themselves complaining to God and blaming Him for their troubles, when in fact... It's their own sins. A sobering, one sobering verse in Isaiah 29. And every time I read this, I have to check myself. It's, it's one of those things. Isaiah 29, 13. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. I have a certain level of concern that there may be people here who have learned the fear of God by the commandments of men. Their heart is not to serve God, but they've learned how to do this. Their heart is not for God. They're only here because it's where they should be. They're only here because they've been dragged here for 20 years by their parents. We should all have a heart for God. It should never be as these people, distant from God, and we only honor Him with our lips Anything we do here ought to be from our hearts. Nothing we do, I don't believe, ought to be by the commandments of men. We should so much want to please God from the heart and not some ritual or something that we believe is right because we've just been taught that all these years. I'm not contradicting anything we've been taught. I'm just, don't get that wrong. There's nothing. It's just, it's easy to grow up in a church setting and learn the fear of God only by the commandments of men. So these people are being told this, that their hearts are far from Him. They're being told in in, uh, 
chapter 1 about their sacrifices. Just don't bring them anymore. I'm tired of your sacrifices. I'm tired of all your offerings of incense. Enough. Your heart is not with me. And you're complaining to me that I have forgotten you. Verse 2 of chapter 50, he goes on and asks some more questions. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is it possible in this day and age for God to come to you and I? Is it possible for God to speak to individuals in this room? And we don't come. And we don't listen. And we don't care. We don't believe God is speaking here. Why? If He's not speaking here, I don't know where He's speaking. He is speaking other places, I'm sure. We're not the exclusive 150,000 member church that's got the whole, (laughs) the whole revelation of everything right here. But it has to remind you of that sinister thing we call sin. Because when God came in the cool of the night or in the day, what did he ask after the fall? He said, Adam, where are you? Now, who separated from who? It was the sin. Sin. Sin has the power to separate you from your God. Sin has the power to separate you from your God. Sin separated Adam and Eve from their Creator. Sin is what separates us from our loving Father. And that's what these people were being accused of. It's your iniquities, your transgressions that have brought this on you. I did not divorce you. I did not sell you. It's your sin, your iniquities. Isaiah 59, we know it so well, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. We don't like to talk about sin, do we? Let's just leave sin alone. Let's not come to grips with the fact that that one thing, that rebellion, that disobedience, that willful act of I'm going to do it my way, that breaking of God's law, that disregard for what He said, is sin. And sin separates you from God. He doesn't divorce you just because He finds you just for no reason. It's sin that separates. Sin has a power, doesn't it? We're so used to the idea of not thinking about sin, not understanding the power of sin, not realizing that we so desperately need a remedy for sin, that every time we take communion, we ought to remember that. That at one time we were separate from God. Our sins separated us from Him. And only by the obedience of the servant we'll see here 
do we have a remedy for sin? Because God's power through His Son is greater than the power of sin to separate you from Him. I don't think everybody in this room really knows that. I'm not naive to think that everyone in here has a real, true, and personal relationship with the Savior. I know we all want to think that because we all are in this building. But apart from what Jesus Christ has done as this obedient servant, your sin separates you from God. It's that simple. And it's that harsh. Westminster Confession of Faith defines sin this way. Sin is any want of conformity onto or transgression of the law of God. It's that simple, isn't it? It's to miss the mark. But it's not just breaking the law, is it? It's an offense against who? It's God Himself we offend. If you would, turn over to Second Chronicles. Because when we look at these people, and I hear their complaint, and their blaming of God that He must have forgotten them and forsaken them, and you realize that it wasn't God who separated Himself from them. It was them who separated themselves from Him. Because He's always been for His people. Second Chronicles 36 and verse 14. Speaking to, of these people, He says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by His messengers, rising up early and sending them because He had what? Compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised His words and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. Therefore He brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men on young man or virgin or the age or the weak, and he gave them all into his hand. How serious is sin? I mean, how serious is sin? Is sin serious or is it, uh, is it all grace and now we can sin all the more because we have what Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined as cheap grace. There's just so much grace that it doesn't matter what we do anymore, right? We do whatever we want. And yet there are so many rebukes. I mean, all you got to do is read Revelation 2 and 3 and you're going to find God is rebuking His own people and making threats that if you don't do this and repent, I'm taking away this, I'm taking away that. Don't ever think sin is a trivial matter. Sin has the power to separate us from God. So he asked, why when I came, back in Isaiah 50, why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there none to answer? Doesn't it say that he sent them prophets? He sent messengers because he loved them. 
Did he do it once? Did he do it twice? I mean, I haven't counted how many times he sent people to them to warn them, to tell them what would happen to them if they didn't repent. A lot. Years and years of God reaching out his hand in compassion, saying, my hand is not so short that it cannot redeem you. You want deliverance from your enemy? You're going to have to come to me on my terms. He asks, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Is God's hand so short that he can't rescue any one of us in here? Can he not redeem us? Well, I mean, sin's a big deal, right? Sin. Sin, that willful act of disobedience against Him in His person and in His law. That thing that once is committed puts a separation between you and Him. How's He going to reach to you and get you now? How short is His hand? Is it long enough to get you? How? Does He just reach down and get you? You're sinful. You're separate from Him now. He's holy. You're not. There's going to need to be a power sent to overcome sin. His hand is not shortened that it cannot redeem. Or He asks, do I have no power to deliver? And then He goes on and reminds them, right? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there's no water, and I die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. It's not too hard to understand where the reference to that all is. And that's their exodus out of Egypt, where the most powerful man at the time, a nation, held these people as slaves. Was he not powerful enough to redeem his people and bring them out of Egypt? No, his hand was too short, right? That was way out of his control to be able to rescue and deliver his people from Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh's a big deal, right? God says, I raised Pharaoh up that I may show my power in him. I'm going to put him down so that All will know what? I am the Lord. See, there's a purpose in Him delivering you. There's a purpose in Him redeeming you. And it goes a little bit bigger than you just having a fat and happy life in Shelbyville Christian Assembly. Or wherever you live. It has more to do with Him being glorified in the fact that He could rescue you from what separated you from Him and bring you to Himself. But in the process, there's a furnace. There's a time that we need to be purged. There's trials. There's tribulation. There's affliction. There's things that are promised to us. There's things that these people went through that they may be brought out, purged of their idolatry. 
Is God wanting to purify you and me? Or does he not care? I mean, really, I mean, Jesus died for my sins. He's now my Savior. His blood is all I need. Is that the end? Is that the end of the story? Why don't we all just do whatever we want or just sit around and wait to go through a hole in the sky someday? God's still dealing with us because He has a purpose in saving each one of us. And it has more to do with Him and His name and Him being glorified as the one who could save a sinner and bring him to Himself. It has more to do with that than it has to do with just you being comfortable. Now, I like comfort. Boy, I like comfort. I'm going to be pretty comfortable tomorrow. I'll be real comfortable <laughs> right after I, you know. Is gluttony still a sin? <laughs> when when, when uh, God talks about Pharaoh and the great power that he was to hold captive his people. He says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Your salvation, your time of testing, your time of affliction, your time of being purified, your time of being purged of things, is why? So that God could be glorified. Because He's doing the work in you. It's not you doing the work. He is going to be glorified in the fact that He took vile, unrighteous sinners and made a way for them to come back to Him. And in the process... There's going to be hard times, and there's going to be affliction, and there's going to be delays, and there's going to be times when we wait. And in those times, things should be addressed in our lives. God is purifying for Himself a people that He may be glorified, that His power may be shown. So if sin has the power to separate us from God, we need a remedy, don't we? I know this sounds like a gospel message, but you know what? I like the gospel. There's something powerful about the gospel. There's something about the gospel that everyone in this room needs to hear. There are people who maybe have never heard the gospel in such a way that it's actually convicted them. But the gospel is this. Your sins have separated you from me. But I'm making a way that my arm, my hand can now reach down and redeem you. I can deliver you. But it's going to come through one man. And that's the servant that he's going to mention here in verse 4. He says about the servant of the Lord, the power of God to save us is His Son. He says, The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Oh, that we would all 
Learn how to speak a word in season to anyone in this room that is weary. Oh, that we would exhort one another daily as we see the day approaching. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not Superman. And there's a day or two or three or ten or fifteen just in this past week that I needed a word. We all need at a season in our life to hear a word that strengthens us. A time when maybe you're just a little weary. I don't know how you feel, but if I look around this room, I don't always sense this, but I can see some people and I go, something's... And I know how to pray for these people somehow. I just know that they're struggling. I just know that they're weary. I know something needs to be said to them. Because weariness leads to quitting. We don't want to quit. You think about what you've endured to this point. The afflictions that you've made it through. And we're still here. There are people who've given up far more than probably any of us ever will. Why? There must be something far greater waiting for us when this is all over. And yet the world has such a way of just entangling us in their web of deceptiveness. So, not only do I wish we all had... the ability to speak a word in season, but that we would all awaken with an ear to hear. I mean, do you realize, maybe you take it for granted, but if God doesn't speak, you're not going to hear anything. If God doesn't speak, you only hear words. We need to have an ear that hears. We need to be praying for our pastor, for anyone who speaks, that they have something that God can use to speak to us. Nobody has to be a great order. It's God who speaks to those ears who can hear. I think about Hezekiah. And you can read the, uh, you should read Second Chronicles 32. And some of you know the story. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, right? Comes down and sets up in Judea. What's he going to do? He's going to besiege the cities. He's taking it. And what's he doing? He's in our... Our, our current vocab, uh, lingo, he's trash-talking. He's trash-talking, isn't he? He's saying, listen, none of these other cities, none of these other nations, their gods didn't help them when I came. I came and I took them. You don't have a chance. In fact, this leader of yours, Hezekiah, he's leading you all wrong. No god stands before me. I'm king of Assyria. Hezekiah 
says this. It says of him in verse 7 and 8, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judea. Man, words strengthened the people. They heard nothing but trash talk. You are done. You're done. In fact, Hezekiah is leading you all wrong. And yet Hezekiah could come forth with words that said, Listen, he who is with us is more than all Assyria has. And Assyria was a pretty big deal. So he strengthened his people with words. So Jesus comes on the scene. Did Jesus speak words? (laughs) We know he spoke words. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. And he reads from this very prophecy, chapter 61. And he says this. Now, chapter 61 is a prophecy written, right? To who? To these people who are complaining. Not just to us, not just to those people in Jesus' day. It's written to these people who are complaining. Isaiah 61, he reads in Luke 4. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Here's the deliverance that's been promised. Here He is. Here's the arm of the Lord right here. And he goes on and begins to explain about during the famine, during Elijah's time, you know, and Jesus wasn't, or Elijah wasn't sent to any widows in Jerusalem, and they went, yeah, that's a good story. All of a sudden, they weren't amazed at his words anymore, were they? Oh, no. It didn't go their way. That's not what they wanted to hear. They're ready to throw him over a cliff. They're done with him. So just like that, Jesus can speak words out of this very prophecy. Two sentences later, they're ready to do away with him. The verse 5, he goes on and says, The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. It's a far contrast from Israel, who's nothing but rebellious, aren't they? Stubborn and rebellious. Their sins have separated them from their God. Now we see an obedient servant, one who hears with an obedient ear, one who has his ear opened and he's not rebellious. He doesn't turn away from the commands of God, does he? Everything that God speaks, He does. Everything He sees the Father doing, He does. Jesus did nothing of His own accord, it says in John. So His obedience in the face of affliction and suffering is contrary to Israel's story 
of the opposite. Affliction and suffering causes them to be disobedient. So as he suffered, and we know this is about Jesus, as he suffered, it says that he knew something. In verse 7 it says that he knew that the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Maybe there's somebody in this room that needs the arm of the Lord to redeem you from the sin that separates you from God. This is the arm of the Lord, His servant. He doesn't just save you apart from His Son, does He? It's His obedient servant. It's His Son that didn't rebel when He was instructed of the Lord. He never turned away from doing what was right. And yet he suffered greatly because of it, didn't he? That's how sinful people are redeemed. By an obedient servant. Hebrews 12, 2, we all know it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It's the same one who in his complete and total obedience to the Father, cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isn't that what they're complaining about? They're rebellious. They deserve it. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, it was, it was King David. Now, King David is another example to us of someone who went through an awful lot of affliction. Oh, you don't have to read too many Psalms, do you, to find out. Now, King David wasn't being afflicted because he was rebellious. See, we don't want to go around and go, oh, he's being afflicted. I don't know what he's doing wrong in his life. I wonder what he did. Look what's going on there. That's not working. It not necessarily sin, but David is being prepared, isn't he? He's anointed king, but he's being prepared. But it's, you know, I don't know, what is it, seven, to seven years, ten years? He's being pursued by Saul. He's hiding in caves. Who penned those words in Psalm 22? David penned those words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did God ever forsake David? Did he ever feel forsaken? Was the process of getting from here to here long and painful sometimes? Didn't David write in Psalm 3, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. It's God 
alone who vindicates and justifies those who trust Him and in that trust they endure affliction and suffering. They don't give up. They stay with it knowing that as I hold on to God and His Word and no matter how long it takes for the fulfillment of this promise, I hold on to it. In the end, those are the ones who will be justified, who will be vindicated. We get, we all know, end of chapter 10 in Hebrews, right? Where Habakkuk is quoted. Habakkuk, another prophet to these people. He tells these people, listen, the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie, though it tarries. Wait for it. Because it will surely come. I will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by faith. People who are in captivity are told to hold on. The just, only those who hold on by faith are the ones that are going to be justified when it all comes down in the end. Wasn't Jesus, after enduring all he did, was he not vindicated as being who he was? He suffered greatly for your sake and mine. (coughs) So why bring about all this? Why bring about all this suffering and adversity on the righteous? Why not just why why doesn't God just let us be saved, redeem us, bring us to himself, and then just leave us alone? Why why any adv- why why adversity? Why persecution? Why tribulation? Why? My life would be easier if there wasn't any. And you know what? There's been a time or two shamefully I've avoided it. Because it's easy to kind of draw back a little, isn't it? I mean, we've heard the example of Peter pretty often lately. All you got to do is draw back a little bit. Now I'm not persecuted anymore. I'm not really doing anything wrong, but I'm no longer identified as his either. So the afflictions that we endure are for the purpose of purging and purifying us. It's the separation of you from the world around you that God will judge. Now, if we read in 1 Peter the way I see it, in 1 Peter 4, Peter says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in good doing as to a faithful creator. Is it possible? You read this context, 
You read the context of Hebrews 12 where it talks about chastening. It generally has to do with persecution by others. Could it be, as in the Old Testament, God uses who to judge his own people? Nations far more wicked than they were. He brought in Assyria, Babylon. He uses people to judge his own. Why? Why? I mean, I can't think of anything more purifying in a Christian's life than persecution. I really can't. But in the persecution, what's happening is, is you're being separated. You're being removed from the world. You're being purged. You're being isolated from those who are persecuting you because judgment's coming on them. Does God need to remove you from that? Because when judgment falls on the world, when judgment falls on this earth, are you going to be any different than the world when judgment comes? Or are you going to be judged just like the world? So when God judges his own people in the Old Testament, every time he did with Assyria and Babylon... He uses these people to judge his own, to purify them in what we could say is the furnace of affliction. But when he's done using these nations, what happens to these nations? God judges them. So if the world persecutes us, and we take a stand as Christians, and we find ourselves being persecuted, and that chastening happens because of that persecution. What is God really doing? He's allowing persecution, chastening, purging, so that we're further and further away because God is purifying a people to himself. Because when he comes to judge the world, you don't want to be judged with them. And he doesn't want you judged with them. So he uses those in this world to persecute us. So at the end of this chapter in verse 10 and 11, now 10 is the verse that a long time ago somebody gave me at a time in my life where I guess I just was confused, had a struggle in my life, was wondering what to do, and they gave me this verse, and I thought, ho-hum, I don't really follow what this means kind of thing. But Isaiah says this, he asks the question, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant who walks in darkness and has no light? What is he supposed to do? Is there a time in the delay of fulfillment, in the time of testing and trying and affliction that you may just find yourself not in spiritual darkness, but you're just, what's going on? Why is this taking so long? I mean, have you ever asked that question? Maybe not. But he's telling these people here, listen, my ways aren't your ways, and my thoughts aren't your thoughts. 
You need to stay faithful to me. You trust me and remain faithful, even though you may walk in a path that you're uncertain about. There's darkness. You just don't know what's going on. The other side of that is verse 11. He says, look all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This shall you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. If we're not going to, even in the midst of uncertainty, if we're not going to trust in the name of the Lord and lean upon Him or rely upon Him, if we instead are going to go, you know what, that's not working. Let me go over here and try this and separate yourself from the very servant, the very son that he gave to save you. The way I read that is you'll lie down in torment. You will die in destruction. There's nothing outside of him that saves us. It doesn't matter how dark the world gets, no matter how confusing things seem. All we've got is Him. We hold on to Him always. It doesn't matter how bleak it looks, no matter how dark it gets in the world, no matter how hot the persecution or the trial is, we can rely on Him. One last verse, Micah 7, Micah 7. I'll give you a couple of minutes to find it. Micah 7. And verse 7. He says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. Those who remain faithful, those who are the just, are the ones that are going to trust him all the way to the end, regardless. You know, Jeremiah prophesied, And he said, 70 years you're going to be in captivity. But you know what? You're going to seek me and you're going to find me when you search for me with all your heart. Instead of asking the question, maybe God's forsaken me. Maybe he's forgotten about his word. Maybe we need to put our hand over our mouths. And maybe we need to find the time to seek Him with all our heart and not just count on things will just work out. 
Let's take the time to seek Him. Because we will find Him. Is He to be found? We can find Him. Amen. Did I go too long? Okay. Lost track of time. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Father, may we each take something home with us tonight, something from you, something you've spoken to our hearts. Father, those things that convict, those things that comfort, those things that encourage. May we remember that we are the ones that you have redeemed to yourself. We are the ones that can seek you. And we will find you. And we will pray to you. And you do hear us. For you are with us. You are for us. And you are the one who justifies us. I ask your blessing on all these people here. In Jesus' name, amen. This is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart, I worship you.
Lord, every moment I'm away, Lord, have your way, Lord, I give you my heart, Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, I live for you, every breath that I take. Every moment I'm away, Lord, have your way. Uh, we want to pray for uh, Sarah, Sarah and Judy. Anyone else traveling or needs prayer for anything? Somebody's going to Florida and they need prayer. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we uh, we lift up Sarah and uh, Judy to you. We just ask, Lord, that in Jesus' name you would just uh, give them a, a, a good trip, a safe trip. Lord, that you would go before them and behind them. That you would guard them and keep them, protect and preserve Father, may they have just a restful, peaceful time together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Kept you long enough. You are dismissed.